You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as some Ukrainian parliamentary candidates face attacks with sticks, guns and grenades, we ask what chance there is for a fair and comprehensive election on Sunday. And from Brussels, we hear about the challenges facing Jean-Claude Juncker's new European Commission as it prepares to take office. But we begin in Japan, where Prime Minister Shinzo Abe lost two cabinet ministers this week over electoral irregularities. Both were women, and their departure was, among other things, a blow to Mr Abe's effort to boost the participation of women in politics and in Japan's workforce more generally. The resignations came amid gathering economic storm clouds in Japan and in foreign policy, continuing tension with China. So is Mr Abe's luck running out? To find out, I'm joined from Tokyo by our correspondent David McNeil and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith. David, who were these two ministers and why did they resign? Well, one was the trade and industry minister, Yuko Obuchi, uh, and she was by far the highest profile because um, she was considered uh, a tip for Japan's first female prime minister, uh, and she was considered popular and also not really uh, an Abe uh, candidate in a sense because she was more to the left, considered more to the left of Abe's other picks. And then the second one was Justice Minister Midori Matsushima, uh, and uh, she was uh, slightly less higher profile, but again, you know, somebody who he didn't really want to lose. So they're both considered uh, serious losses to the cabinet. Now, his uh, government has been uh, pretty popular since it took office two years ago. Can we expect that to change now? Well, you know, the problem is, yes, well, first of all, the opinion polls show that the cabinet has dipped below, uh, support for the cabinet, I should say, has dipped below 50% for the first time since he took office. Uh, in late 2012. And um, the problem, I suppose, for the opposition is that they're weak and divided. Uh, And it's very hard to see how they can capitalize on something like this, despite the fact that, you know, any other time, the loss of two cabinet ministers in a single day, coupled with the fact that the economy seems to be taking a downturn, and then these sort of huge problems with Japan's foreign policy would normally be uh, a, a huge dividend for the opposition, but because they're really in disarray, it's very hard to see how they can capitalise on this. Now, I want to come back to foreign policy in a moment, but first of all, Mr Abe got elected on an expansionary economic policy known as Abenomics. Can you explain briefly what that involves? Well, he uh, uses the metaphor of arrows. He says there are three arrows in this uh, expansionary policy. One is fiscal stimulus. Uh, the other is monetary easing, and then the third is was structural reforms. Uh, and as time goes on, uh, you know, most people uh, seem to sort of think that the really what that has boiled down to is chucking huge amounts of money uh, at the economy, which is very much sort of old style liberal democratic politics has been going on now for most of the post-war period. And, and the most important part, or at least the part that everybody has been looking to Mr. Abe to carry out the sort of stimulus uh, and the, uh, the reforms has been very slow in coming. And I think that as we get into uh, the second and third year of Mr. Abe's 
term in office, uh, people are starting to really question whether he can carry out these reforms that he's promised. Now, part of uh, of this, uh, the purpose of these reforms and of this uh, economic policy was to try to get out of this uh, apparently endless uh, deflation that uh, that uh, Japan has experienced. Is it showing any signs of success there? Well, yes. I mean, prices are certainly up, and that is considered a victory of sorts for Abenomics. But the problem for him, I think, is that wages have to keep pace, and they're not. Apart from the large companies, the very biggest companies in Japan, the Toyotas, the Sonys, and so on, uh, most people who work in the economy are are only experiencing higher prices, uh, but not uh, higher wages. And what that means, in effect, is that people are not really feeling the benefits of Abenomics, at least not so far. And the longer this goes on, the more of a problem I think it will be for, for Mr. Abe. Uh, and, you know, the other thing we should say is that he has pledged to raise the sales tax, the consumption tax in Japan, the VAT equivalent in Japan, from 8 to 10%. He's already raised it from 5 to 8%. Uh, and if he does that, then this situation will worsen for ordinary consumers. And he, raises, he faces a real dilemma, because if he doesn't do it, then the international markets will hammer him, they will see it as uh, uh, reneging on a pledge that he has made. If he does do it, then ordinary Japanese are going to feel the pinch. Paddy Smith, uh, on foreign policy, there are tentative signs of a thaw, possibly, in one of the big uh, disputes of Mr Abe's tenure so far, a standoff with China over some disputed islands. Could you explain what this dispute is and what's going on? Well, there are, there are a number of issues uh, uh, at stake in the row with uh, between China and Japan. One is is two um, a series of disputed islands, uh, the which are known as Senkaku in Japan and Diaoyu in 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 China, uh, and both uh, Chinese and um, Chinese uh, Chinese and, and Japanese governments are refusing to to. Uh, in any way acknowledge uh, uh, that, 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 that they can get over the difficulties there. And there's an also long-running rows that, that Japan has been having with uh, not only China, indeed, but Korea um, about its attitude to uh, its its own role in, in the Second World War and the, the brutality of its... Um, of its uh, soldiers and the the rewriting of history that people that the Chinese see going on in in uh, Japan, um, and that wasn't helped. Um, their relationship wasn't helped by the fact that at the weekend, the the Prime Minister Abe sent a bunch of flowers to the Yasukuni Shrine, which is to Jap- Japan's uh, war dead, uh, and three of his cabinet ministers attended the shrine, including one who is. Uh, close to having to resign. He's certainly in the firing line as well as the two who have gone. Uh, he's a minister responsible for um, the issue of kidnapped uh, Japanese held in North Korea. And uh, he has been associated with the far-right group, uh, which has attacked the Koreans. Um, while that is is continuing, and Abe doesn't show any serious sign of backing off his nationalism, the Chinese and the Japanese have been talking quietly about whether or not uh, himself and President Xi Jinping 
could shake hands at a forthcoming uh, Asia-Pacific uh, economic summit. And this would be a breakthrough. Uh, Xi, Xi Jinping has refused to, to meet uh, Abe up till now. And uh, there are signs that this, this, this may happen, although um, Abe's behavior isn't likely to make it uh, any easier. As you said, it's not just China that uh, there are tensions with. More broadly and more generally, uh, how is Mr. Abe's Japan viewed by its neighbors and by, indeed by its allies? I think I, I think there's still nervousness about uh, Abe's own election. Uh, he he is seen as part of a clutch of uh, across that part of of the Pacific and indeed stretching to India of of nationalist leaders who have been elected in recent years and indeed Xi Jinping uh, is seen in in a similar light. Uh, so there is a there is a, f- a feeling that um, uh, Japan is is not really in a mood for for a uh, conciliatory for more conciliatory um, peace building uh, operations in, in in the in the region uh, david mcneil is that true uh, that perception is it is it a fair one that japan isn't actually in the mood for much peace making or peace building well uh, i think the issue here is that um, mr abe is anchored to a particular kind of politics a very uh, strong nationalist politics uh, and what that means in practice is that uh, he really has no way of backing down from things like Yasukuni. Uh, he uh, must go to Yasukuni Shrine, for example, just like one example, to appease his supporters. But Yasukuni, for the Chinese and for the Koreans and for much of Asia, uh, is non-negotiable. This is the shrine that, um, you know, enshrines the souls of the people who led World War Two, including the leaders of World War Two, Japan's uh, World War Two campaign across Asia, uh, and any uh, visit to that shrine implies at least part, uh, you know, agreement with the aims of the World War Two leaders. And that's just one example. You know, to take another, uh, Mr. Abe has very controversial views on history, uh, and uh, has shown many signs over his 20-year uh, career of uh, trying to uh, play down or even hide Japan's war crimes. So because he's, he's sort of wedded to that kind of politics, uh, the Chinese, the Koreans, and much of the rest of Asia don't trust him. And it's very hard to see how, you know, even if he manages to shake hands with Xi, with Xi Jinping, uh, how this can be sort of overcome, because there's a fundamental difference in the way that they see the world. And where does Japanese public opinion more broadly stand on issues like uh, the Second World War, memories, and indeed the foreign policy approach? Well, there's no uh, there's no um, evidence that ordinary Japanese people support in large numbers uh, Mr. Abe's revisionist campaign, historical revisionist campaign, and there's very little evidence that they support his visits to Yasukuni. What there is is some evidence that ordinary Japanese people are sort of tired of the the bashing, what they see as the bashing by China and Korea of Japan on historical issues. And that's something that Mr. Abe has quite skillfully used. Uh, But it it really remains to be seen if he can capitalize on that uh, to sort of cow China and Korea. I don't think these historical issues are going to go away, and I don't think most people who observe them uh, uh, do either. Uh, Finally, David, uh, Mr. Abe has obviously been uh, in some pretty choppy political waters. Is his political luck starting to run out, or would you expect him to bounce back? Well, I think all of, this all very much depends on the economy. You know, a lot of people maintain when they look at Mr. Abe's political career that he got into 
uh, he got into politics really not for economic reasons, for political reasons. His long-term aim is to completely change the sort of post-war architecture that Japan has had. Uh, but if he cannot keep the economy humming along, then that entire project collapses. And what we have seen in the second quarter is the economy perform much more much more badly, much worse than uh, everybody expected. And in the third quarter, we're expecting another set of bad figures. That's not going to play well at all uh, for Mr. Abe. But the issue, as I said before, is, is there an opposition that can capitalize on that at the moment? There isn't, not really. David McNeil in Tokyo, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. The European Parliament votes this week on Jean-Claude Juncker's new European Commission, and all the signs are that the team will be approved. Despite some grumbling about a few of the nominees, only one country, Slovenia, has had to withdraw its first choice. And Mr Juncker's creation of a group of vice presidents to oversee the work of other commissioners has been accepted without much of a murmur. But what can we expect from the new commission? Will there be a change of policy direction in Brussels? New priorities or new alliances? To discuss all this, I'm joined from Strasbourg by our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, and Patrick Smith is still with me here in Dublin. Suzanne, is there any doubt that the Parliament in Strasbourg will approve the new commission? Yeah, at this stage, it looks like the commission will be approved on Wednesday here when it goes to vote in the Parliament. Um, on Monday evening, the last interviews of the commissioner's evidence took place, and the Slovenian commissioner, um, the, the, the new uh, nominated candidate, has to appear before her respective committee on Monday evening, and it looks like she, she passed with flying colours. So the signs here are that both the main groups here in the European Parliament, the EPP and the SND, are going to back the commission when it goes to a full vote uh, on Wednesday. Uh, now, one of the structural ch- changes that uh, Mr. Juncker has announced involves the creation of all these vice presidents. What exactly is their role? Yes, I mean, I think this is a dramatic change. I mean, the Commission has long been criticised for being too unwieldy. Um, the, the concept by which each country uh, is allocated a commissioner, which was was given to Ireland, in a sense, during the, the Lisbon Treaty, was assured to Ireland. Um, this has been a source of much criticism, saying that we now have kind of second-rate uh, commissionerships, etc., etc., and there's no need. So this is an attempt to kind of streamline the system and to have seven vice, prince, uh, vice presidents who will be in charge of certain policy areas, certain policy priorities like energy union, finance, economy, that kind of thing. Um, now, what's really going to be interesting is how this new layer of vice presidents are going to interact with, with the commissioners and where is the real power going to lie. So, for example, we have the French commissioner, Pierre Moscovici, has succeeded in Ali Ren as the economics commissioner, but in fact he will be answerable to two vice, vice presidents. So the real question will be how the power dynamics play out in this over the next five years. And presumably one of the other questions surrounding that is who actually will be overseeing the Directorate General in each of these uh, commission portfolios, which is obviously the, the large group of civil servants that tend to, mm. uh, to feed the commissioner with, uh, mm. with policies. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, at the moment, there's a real sense of flux in Brussels and in Strasbourg. There's a lot of movement going on between different DGs, different director generals. And actually, just this morning, it's quite interesting, the head of the EPP group, uh, Manfred Weaver, uh, made the point when he was asked about Slovenian commissioner, he said, well, in fact, we don't really need to know if, if, if the commissioner is that much on top of her brief, because she's got thousands of officials who will be doing the policy for her. So he kind of, uh, if, if you like, kind of left the cat out of the bag in terms of how things work and commission 
Commission. It's a huge organisation. Uh, there's a huge amount of uh, officials working working here. And yes, a lot of the power does reside in these different directorate generals. Is there any sign yet of a shift in policy direction that we can expect? I think the big thing to watch out for is, is the economic policy. Um, now, Juncker has set out a plan for a 300 billion euro investment package, and we will probably not see details of this until the end of this year. But this, he's, he's really um, set this up as one of his main policy priorities over the last few months. Now, already there are questions being asked about what this is going to entail, where the money is going to come from. There's been calls, particularly from the S&D side of the house, that it shouldn't be just recycled money. Um, um, that it should come from new sources. So uh, over the last few weeks, Mr. Juncker has been sounding out senior officials from the European Investment Bank and even the European, the ESM, the, the Eurozone Rescue Fund, about possibly using that to leverage money. But it seems Germany in particular is against this and that may not happen. But I think this will be, everybody is going to be watching what happens in terms of economic policy. Will we see a shift away from fiscal consolidation and austerity with which the Barroso Commission has been identified? And will we see more of a move towards investment and greater flexibility in terms of economic policy and the stability and growth pact. And Paddy Smith, one of the first decisions economically that the new commission is going to be making is about the budgets for France and Italy. What's at stake here? Well, what's at stake is is precisely what Suzanne's saying, the, 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 whether or not the, the Commission is going to move uh, to more flexible posture in relation to, to fiscal targets. And the Italian budget, for example, is, is basically saying, to hell with your fiscal targets, we're going to push all the targets out another year. The French are doing more or less the same. And uh, the uh, Hollande made a, a speech in Parliament the other day in which he talked about uh, how France was a, an independent sovereign country and it, you know, it wasn't going to be pushed around. Well, he may be pushed around. Uh, Germany, Merkel in particular, uh, has spoken in the Parliament only this week about how the, the, the Commission has got to stick to its guns and stick to the the, the old target. So that that will be the very first item, more or less, on the on the new Commission agenda, looking at those two budgets. Uh, Suzanne, uh, there's been some talk around Europe of a kind of uh, a trade-off that uh, France and Italy would be allowed a certain amount of leeway on their budgets uh, if they, uh, in return, got serious about structural reforms. Is there any truth in that? Yeah, I think things have changed in the last few weeks. Uh, one of the main reasons being there's been new economic figures out of Germany which are painting a pretty negative picture. Um, Germany is suffering a, a fall in exports uh, because of the, the Russian ban and because of the lack of demand from other Eurozone countries. Germany is an economy that, ex- that depends so much on exports. So the very fact that Germany itself has to confront a potential slowdown in its own economy, um, I think has changed slightly the dynamic in terms of this conversation. Um, Germany has been asked to consider more flexibility in terms of its whole economic approach, saying that it would benefit too. So we might see a a great, I mean, as, as Paddy said there, um, the Angela Merkel said just this week that the, the targets can't be changed. But there is a hope that Germany will come around slightly. And this week, uh, the French Economy and Finance Minister flew to Berlin for 
discussions ahead of this week's summit to see could they hammer out some deal. So we have this prospect that, that a lot of people are uncomfortable with of, you know, the big countries having their own kind of mini summit, if you like, before the 28th get together on Thursday or Friday. Um, but there is a sense that something may be agreed before the EU leaders gather in Brussels later on this week. And how big, Suzanne, would this shift be if, for example, uh, the Juncker Commission were to move away from the uh, the absolute focus on uh, fiscal orthodoxy that the Barroso uh, Commission had, and you've got uh, the rather imaginative policies of uh, Mario Draghi at the European Central Bank in Frankfurt, mm-hmm. and then you've got France and Italy calling for what they want, and all these, in a sense, ranged against the uh, ordo-liberal orthodoxy from coming from Berlin. Are we, would, is that a big shift that we're about to see? Well, it would be. I mean, I think one of the, one of the driving factors behind it, though, is the broader economic picture. You know, things have just changed in the last three or four months. Um, GDP stalled in the second quarter of this year. That, that gave people a wake-up call. And there's now fear. The IMF um, warned last week that uh, Europe has a 40% chance of re-entering recession for the third time since 2008. So there are now serious worries about the long-term health of the European and particular, particularly Eurozone economy. Um, inflation is continuing to fall. And unemployment is continuing to stay high. So I think the fact that Juncker is taking up this position at this juncture um, could, in a sense, make things easy for him if he does want to implement some kind of a change in policy. I mean, we've also got the other dynamic, which is that a lot of the smaller countries, and, and Ireland could be included here, um, quite rightly may feel that there's one standard for them and another standard for the bigger countries. That it's okay for France initially and the, and the bigger Eurozone countries to be allowed to to have a greater flexibility, but for the smaller countries, particularly those in the bailouts, they had no choice but but to Im- impose austerity. So Juncker would be quite minded to to make sure that this message uh, is something he doesn't want to to portray as he as he takes over the commission. Paddy, I think the, 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 there's a there's a different dynamic also at work, which sort of counterbalances that, and that that is that it's the argument about uh, flexibility is not strictly speaking a left right argument, for example, in the, or a big country small country argument. Ireland has a very strong interest in Europe reflating because that's where its economy will will pick up from. And and I think we will be seeing we'll be seeing Kenny quietly saying to the Germans you should be reflating your economy, to the Europeans, look, we, we would like to see a large investment package. Uh, jobs, jobs, jobs. That's the that's the number one priority. I think that Juncker will find himself eased in that direction with the support of the small country. Uh, Paddy, one of the things that Juncker says about his commission is that he wants them to legislate less. Uh, how is that likely to work? Well, it 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 may work uh, simply uh, by 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 virtue of the new, uh, rather complicated uh, uh, structure in the Commission, because the the vice presidents will be filtering uh, legislation through uh, before it gets to the 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 uh, Commission table and may actually act as a block to new legislation there. But there's also uh, Vice President Timmermans, who's a very touched uh, tough uh, Dutchman, who uh, has a specific job uh, to uh, to make sure that they legislate less. Now, the realities of Brussels politics are such that uh, there will be imperatives coming from the Parliament, from, coming from the Council, and that they do various things. So in practice, whether they produce less legislation is, is another matter. Uh, one of the charges against Mr Juncker before he got uh, elected was that he'd spent his life in a smoke-filled room. And as we talk about all these shifting alliances in Europe, 
Could that actually turn out to be an advantage? I think that, that given the importance of the relationship between the Commission and the Council, which the Council has, of, of Ministers and the Council of, of Leaders, which has become more important in the, in the whole European um, uh, infrastructure in, in the course of the last few years, a re rebalancing towards the Commission would would be of some importance. And and Juncker is ideally placed because he knows all of these people very well, having worked with them for a long time, and, and he knows the dynamics. Barroso came out of the, the council too. He was a former prime minister. and uh, But he didn't quite have the, the finger on the pulse that I think that Juncker has. Uh, Suzanne, you, uh, like David Cameron, were something of a sceptic about Mr Juncker uh, <laughs> some months ago. What's your impression of him and his team now? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things to be said, uh, just uh, adding to what, what what Paddy said there. I mean, one one aspect of Mr. Juncker's experience is that he headed the Eurogroup for so long. I mean, that was a hugely important role um, at the height of the Eurozone crisis. So in that sense, he has, uh, you know, an unrivaled experience of dealing with the economic situation in Europe. So that's number one. Number two is he, the signs are that he is pretty conciliatory, that he doesn't hold a grudge. Um, obviously, uh, David Cameron was very, very strong as Christian of Mr. Juncker earlier this year, but um, he rewarded, in a sense, Mr. Cameron with quite a, a, a strong portfolio for his commissioner, Jonathan Hill, who is given internal well, financial services. Um, so that is maybe a sign of an olive branch from Mr. Juncker, and a sign that he is prepared to talk, um, and he, he's a man of compromise, um, and who's prepared to listen, and uh, has been in this council formation for so long that he knows the reality of, of trying, to, trying to get a deal with people. So in that sense, you know, in terms of his personality, thick-skinned and, and ready to compromise, um, he could be a good thing for Europe over the next five years. Uh, finally, Suzanne, you've got a new parliament already installed there and a new commission uh, on its way. Is there a new atmosphere around Brussels and Strasbourg? Yes, there definitely is. I mean, there's a sense, I think, among... Um, among employees here that there's a sense of change. I think with any organization when somebody wants to change something it does it does it sometimes inject positive energy and you can you can find, you can see that here um already this this issue of of Mr. Juncker streamlining things reducing bureaucracy does seem to be borne out as plans for the commission for example um the press service uh, each commissioner. Um, historically had one spokesperson, that system is now going to be changed and there are going to be fewer spokespeople. Now, obviously, that's, that's a huge change for a lot of people working in that area, but there's other, other people who believe that, that that's long due. So um, there is a sense of kind of trepidation, but also, um, <clears throat> but also a sense that this new system <clears throat> with seven vice presidents is going to be hugely different in that Mr. Juncker is, in a sense, already delegating to people close to him about how to run the commission, that he won't be as much of an isolated figure right at the top, that this hierarchy that has been so entrenched in the commission may be loosened somewhat in the next few years. Suzanne Lynch in Strasbourg and Paddy Smith here in Dublin. Thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. A candidate in Ukraine's parliamentary elections this week survived a gun and grenade attack. He was wearing body armour. And others say they've been beaten by rebels in the east of the country. Sunday's elections are supposed to be held throughout the country, but seats in Crimea, which has been annexed by Russia, and in some rebel-held parts of the east won't be filled. So how representatives will the elections actually be? And will they make Ukraine any more governable than it is already? I'm joined now from Kiev by our correspondent, Daniel McLaughlin. Dan, uh, to what extent will this election be representative? Well, 
the main problem, obviously, in terms of representation um, exists out in the east and in the south. Um, Crimea, obviously, will not be represented. Um, internationally, it's still recognized as part of Ukraine, but Russia has annexed it. Uh, so down in Crimea, we're looking at about 1.8 million uh, Ukrainian voters who won't be voting in this weekend's election. Out in the east, obviously, where we have um, uh, ongoing fighting, despite uh, a ceasefire arrangement, this is out in the Nitsk and Lugansk areas, um, there are something like 3 million voters, 3 million of around 5 million voters aren't expected to be able to vote. They're living in areas that are controlled by uh, pro-Russian rebels, and the rebels have uh, said that they definitely won't allow this vote to take place in their areas. Um, around the rest of the country, voting um, certainly should take place. Um, there are monitors out all over the country um, checking that, uh, obviously, uh, checking on preparations for the vote, and they will be monitoring the conduct of the vote and the count of the vote. Uh, we've had many problems in previous elections uh, here in Ukraine with all kinds of, of dirty tricks taking place during the campaign and during the voting and during the counting process. Um, and we will see whether this this, this uh, election day and the voting, the voting itself and the counting will be any cleaner and more transparent. Um, the the current government and the president, Petro Poroshenko, insist that they will. They insist, they insist that they will, these will be the most Western style, as they say, and the most uh, reliable, trustworthy results that uh, Ukraine has had, despite the obvious problems in the East and the annexation of Crimea. I mentioned this candidate who, uh, who found him, his life saved by his body armor. How dangerous is it? Well, this is certainly the, the most serious attack that we've heard of on a candidate. Um, and we're still getting details of what happened, really. Um, this is a, a candidate from um, the Prime Minister, Arseniy Yatsenyuk's uh, party. He says that he was saved by his body armor, and he was attacked in, in, close to his home, very close to, um, very close to the capital, just in, in Borispil, which is where one of the main international airports is located, just outside Kiev. Um, but we've seen some uh, rough stuff around the country. We've seen... Um, most of all, we've seen uh, politicians linked to the old party of, of uh, President Yanukovych, who, of course, was ousted back in February. We've seen candidates who used to be loyal to him being attacked by um, op their opponents, people who are uh, largely linked to nationalist parties in Ukraine. We've seen them roughed up. We've seen them beaten up. We've seen them dumped into garbage cans around the country. Um, but that's the worst that we've seen so far until this report that we're getting today of this, um, this gun and grenade attack. Um, but in general, it's been, um, the, the conduct has certainly been lively, you could certainly say that. Um, but we haven't had um, major uh, complaints about about pre-election violence, about intimidation of people campaigning around the country, except for these cases, relatively isolated cases against people who are associated with Yanukovych, and of course this case that we're still getting um, details of today. What are the big issues in the election? The key issues are really... Um, how the country can get over uh, or get on top of the insurgency in the east um, and deal with the, um, the, the the conflict with Russia, because most people in Ukraine see this as effectively a conflict with Russia, although it's being fought out mostly with uh, with rebels out in, in the eastern provinces of Lugansk and Donetsk. And also we have a major, major economic problems here in, in uh, Ukraine, which uh, Ukraine is trying to get on top of and trying to get over with the help of international lenders, with the help of the IMF, the World Bank, the European Union. Um, but there are um, 
major debates between the the parties over um, how much austerity should be um, should be conducted through economic policy, um, how much uh, pain with the inevitable reforms that are that, that have to be pushed through, how much pain should be should be inflicted upon the the most vulnerable members of society and groups of, uh, in Ukrainian society. Um, and of course, uh, major energy questions. Will Ukraine be able to get through the winter? Uh, will it be able to get um, with the, the current gas supply problems that it has with Russia? Will the government be able to come to some kind of accommodation with Russia to keep the gas flowing through the winter without making concessions that could be seen by some of the more radical parties and their supporters as being too weak and as being um, uh, basically giving in to Russia's demands. So these are the key issues, um, and these are the these are the questions that are being played out and debated across the country now in the final days before before polling on Sunday. On the issue of how to deal with the insurgency and with Moscow, what are the competing views on offer? Well. When you look at the, the probable composition, if you look at the, the, the polls and the surveys taken play, uh, that have been conducted ahead of uh, voting polling day on Sunday, we see that the, the compos- composition of parliament is likely to change radically. Um, obviously, the, 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 the party that was linked to and led by Yanukovych, the region's party, has collapsed and disintegrated. The Communist Party, which was a regular supporter of Yanukovych in parliament, looks like it might not get into parliament. So... Looking at the, the, the massive collapse of support for those parties and also the fact that lots of voters in the East won't be going to the polls. So large parts of Russian-speaking and uh, uh, Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine and areas that are closely linked with Russia traditionally, they will not be able to cast their votes. We're going to see a, a parliament which is much more pro-Western, much more pro-EU and with a, a far stronger nationalist bent than before. So there will be a much stronger uh, anti-Russian feeling, it looks like, in Parliament, and um, probably quite a strong, um, if you like, uh, a a, a constituency in Parliament that is going to be much more combative in terms of how it deals with the insurgency in the East. Lots of the the MPs that were linked with with the old Yanukovych parties um, were looking for compromise with Russia, looking for a way to, to compromise with the... Uh, the leaders of the insurgency in the East who are calling for far greater devolution of powers to those Eastern regions. Um, Their voices are likely to be uh, less strongly heard in this new parliament, which will draw from Western Ukraine much more strongly and Central Ukraine, regions that are traditionally more nationalist and take a much tougher line on relations with Russia. So is this likely to make it more difficult to find an accord with Moscow? Um, certainly, there doesn't seem to be much faith uh, among the, popu- the, the, the population at large um, or among many of the, the, the future MPs in Parliament, the people who look like they're going to be in the future Parliament. Not much faith in, in, in a negotiated solution with Moscow. And if there is going to be a negotiated solution with Moscow, um, they certainly feel like Ukraine has to uh, negotiate from a position of power. Um, it can't carry on giving... Um, concessions to Russia. It, a lot of people don't have any faith in the, 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 the peace process such as it is at the moment and the ceasefire which President Poroshenko agreed back in early September and which hasn't really held. People are continuing to be killed. More than uh, 300 people have been killed since that uh, so, so-called ceasefire agreement back in early September. So 
Um, the, 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 the ceasefire agreement is on very, very shaky ground. Violence continues in the East. And it certainly looks like the, the, the likely composition of the new parliament will demand tough action against Russia, tough action against the rebels. And it may be hard for President Poroshenko to find, to, to tread that fine line between um, keeping parliament happy, which will probably be a much more nationalist parliament, as I say, and finding some kind of accommodation with President Putin, who also um, is likely to be pushing a very, very hard bargain. And of course, those rebels in the East who say they won't recognize the new parliament in Kiev. They don't even recognize Poroshenko's legitimacy. So the new parliament will have many, many uh, difficult tasks on, it ha- tasks on its hands when it finally settles down and when a new ruling coalition is formed, because what? it is likely to be a coalition, uh, a coalition government. What is Moscow saying about these elections? Moscow is very, very skeptical um, about what these elections will bring. Um, there are fears in Ukraine that Moscow will simply say that because um, large parts of the East are not represented, that these, that the new parliament, the new elections that uh, bring about and create this new parliament are not representative. Um, in the same way that they've cast doubts at different times on President Poroshenko's legitimacy, because he was not elected by people in the East. Um, so. Ongoing problems expected with Moscow. These are not expected to um, resolve difficulties with Moscow. And, of course, Moscow points to several of the the parties that are running and have a a reasonable chance of getting into parliament. Moscow says that these parties are effectively uh, deeply anti-Russian and even fascist parties, neo-Nazi parties, they say. And they point to various figures who are on the party lists of even... um, the, the, the major parties that are likely to get into parliament, and they say that these are figures that represent far-right views, uh, strongly anti-Russian views, which uh, and the kind of characters that should not have any role in a, in a modern democracy. So Russia is likely to be very critical of both the conduct and the outcome of these elections. Daniel McLaughlin in Kiev, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Colin McKenna, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.